Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. And I shredded um, all of the ligaments and tendons in my right ankle and um, shattered it in several places. And for a ballerina, that's the kiss of death because you can have surgery and hope that you'll dance again, but it's unlikely, or you can let things heal on their own and it's also unlikely you will dance ever again professionally in that way. And that was, that was my reality. And uh, pretty quickly, between that and about a month and a half later, my brother David was killed in a car accident. My world just really kind of came undone. And um, for me, I had to do some deep internal work about what does it mean to let what my version of being famous and being important and being in the spotlight was. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, to this number, 33444. You'll get a download right away. So our guest today, as a, as a child, and, and even further, so she was a professional dancer involved in film and theater when, unfortunately, tragedy hit, and that was one of her hinge moments that we'll talk about today. Now, from there, her journey has taken her to being a, a youth pastor and now a leadership consultant. Uh, she's a coach to others, in, you know, coaching their creative spirit through uh, retreats, events, speaking engagements, and of course, the one-on-one coaching. Uh, she embodies the belief that, and this is what I love, that staying stuck is never the solution, and stuck is never the furthest that you can go. Uh, she's the author of three books, and she knows all the lines to Schoolhouse of Rock, so we will definitely start with that. Our, <laughs> Our guest today is Suzanne Castle. Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, I am so delighted to be here. Welcome to everyone. Thank you for checking this out today. How are you? So I have to start out with the Schoolhouse of Rock. Oh goodness, okay so now. This is a trivia okay. question for you. Okay, Uh-oh. so right. what's what's the best Ramon song that's played in Schoolhouse of Rock? Oh my gosh, we're talking about two different things. So I mean schoolhouse rock like from you know i'm gonna be 50 next week and i'm talking about conjunction junction what's your oh my goodness oh i thought you were talking about like jack black <laughs> oh i love the jack black film gosh, what's the ramones? uh what is the ramones song in there oh gosh and i see you stumped me i don't know <laughs> what did you, uh well refresh us which one are we talking about so um the schoolhouse rock were the after school specials that came out in the 70s that taught about government and grammar and what it means to uh have the founding of america and gosh i knew the lines to every single one of those i love those and i still struggle sometimes when i'm like oh how is a bill made and then i start singing i'm just a bill oh okay well i kind of remember those yeah, those cartoons. Yeah, I love those. You know, I think I own them all. They're upstairs somewhere. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. We we'll have to put a link to one of them. There you go. Maybe yeah, some of the favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Something is Schoolhouse of Rock, and I was yes. like, yeah, man, the best Ramon song is on that. And what is that? 
what do you think? So the, the best Ramones song, you know, people are always going to cite the classics, but, and, and that is my prerequisite. I tell my kids on, it's a litmus test <laughs> on whether somebody's cool or not. Doesn't right. mean they're a great person, but if they like the Ramones, I said, then they pass okay. the cool test. All right. But the, the best it's uh, Bonzo goes to Bitburg. That's right. I forgot that was in there. So yeah, I'm a huge Depeche Mode kind of a girl. So that's kind of my litmus test too, is if you can, you know, talk to me out of the catalog of DM, then, then we're all good. So. Good, man. Very <laughs> nice. So you are a professional dancer, if we can start with that. Yeah. And, I, and I want you to walk us through that, that time of your life, but then walk us through that hinge moment that happened. Well, early on, from the age of four, I was in dance classes and theater classes. I just knew I was going to be on Broadway. That was always just this nugget deep down inside of me. And my parents were super young. I was born to high school students and they got married and raised me. And they did everything they could to make sure that I had that as part of my life. And early on, I was very lucky. I mean, luck, luck is all that there is in, in that world. And um, I became a professional and was working about by the age of 12 professionally. And so this was my whole world and I just knew that this was all I was gonna do. And then when, when I got to be 25, um, my partner slipped on a wet stain on, on the stage in the middle of a show, tried to catch me, didn't. And I shredded um, all of the ligaments and tendons in my right ankle and um, shattered it in several places. And for a ballerina, that's the kiss of death because you can have surgery and hope that you'll dance again, but it's unlikely, or you can let things heal on their own. And it's also unlikely you will dance ever again professionally in that way. And that was, that was my reality. And uh, pretty quickly between that and about a month and a half later, my brother David was killed in a car accident. My world just really kind of came undone. And, um, for me, I had to do some deep internal work about what does it mean to let what my version of being famous and being important and being in the spotlight was and shift quickly to, I had a younger brother who was nine, my parents whose world just got rocked and literally just leaving everything behind and going home and kind of recentering with family and figuring out what, what does it mean now? What does it mean now? And, uh, you know, it, it would have been easy to throw... Um, a pity party for the rest of my life. And um, to sit in that space of life is really unfair, if this hadn't happened, if this hadn't happened. But, but the reality is it happened. And for me, I had to decide from then and there, okay, what do I do now? Do I stay in the entertainment field and choreograph or produce or whatever? And I do those things even now. But it also meant, okay, I, I want to do something a little bit different that's meaningful in a different way. And so after spending a lot of time at home, I went to seminary and uh, now work with a lot of creatives and companies trying to really do good and amazing things in the world and seek an alternate strategy than what uh, the kind of the capitalistic corporate environment is telling us to be. So that's kind of my big hinge moment. It was, it was a series that, you know, you think one's going to break you and then another one comes and um, you just kind of get up off the mat, right? And keep going. I kind of think of the movie, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Oh, yeah. And, and it sounds very, very similar, although she was a bit older. But yeah. when that injury then happened, um, take us back to that, that experience and, and what you remember about, you know, everything that, that takes place of, did you have surgery? 
I did not. I chose okay. not to have surgery and was in a boot back and back then. And that was a long time ago. Like I said, I'll be 50 next week. So um, they didn't really do all that they do now, which, you know, that's, that's okay. And so I just was in a boot for like eight months and I still have problems. I mean, it's just never, ever going to go away. But what I remember laying there on the stage was, oh gosh, I've got to get up. Like for me, it wasn't even a moment of I'm really hurt. For me, it was, okay, get up, let's go. We got to perform. And I tried really hard to, you know, as uh, ballerinas are the worst about eating, about taking care of themselves and um, you do whatever it takes, you know, and uh, lots of athletes are that way and to their own detriment. And I was that. So I'm sure me getting up and trying to continue made matters worse. And I think it didn't really sink in until a couple of years later when I realized, oh, it really isn't going to be better. Like I have to figure out a different way. I think I was deluding myself for a while at, oh, I can just do this or, oh, I can just do that. And, um, and I still have, you know, I was, I was kickboxing last year and my ankle just collapsed because it just can't quite function in the same way anymore. And, and I think it's just a continual reminder for me anyway, that in that moment, your brain goes one way, your body's going a different way. And, and the most important thing you can do quickly is get into alignment and uh, make sure that you're healing properly before you just sort of like, okay, next thing. So mm-hmm. um, I really struggled with the healing and I, I wish I could, could, could go back to my 20 some odd year old self and say, okay, whoa, you're fine. Let's heal first and see what happens. But I really pushed myself too hard and I think it made it worse. So that, that reconciliation like with yourself and that career, that took a couple years? It took a long time. So uh-huh. lots of therapy. I would say it's only been in the last, I would say eight years. And um, so long, long time that that part of my life was just, it was. And it, and while that's still who I am, it made me who I am today. It's not a part of my current reality. And so, but there are days, especially in this season where the nutcracker is everywhere. Right. And um, when I go to New York and see Broadway, I'll, I'll usually cry the whole first five minutes. Cause it's just, it's so, it's such a part of who I was and it still is just, it's just painful. And I don't think that those hinge moments that you talk about so well in your book, I don't think that they ever really go get better. We get through them and they, they are big markers for us for forever. And I know for me, it's still sadness every day. So mm-hmm. yeah. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. Our new book, You Can Rally. It's not about the setback, it's about the comeback. It can be bought anywhere books are sold or go to the website pukeandrallybook.com. My kids asked why I never pushed them into baseball. And the reason why is, you know, one, being seen behind the curtain of youth sports, especially baseball, it's, it's, a, bit oh, yeah. perver- it's a bit perverted. But, but there's so much pain of... I don't remember my last game. I remember throwing it away. Mine was falling off a cliff because I was a drunk, but, um, you know, but it was still an accident, but the, the pain there, it was, yeah. uh, yeah. Anytime there's, there's baseball around, it, it brings up those, those feelings. It's amazing how powerful that mind is. It is. And I, and you know, I, I did uh, have, I had a role in cats after my big injury and, and every day was a struggle. And every day I was grateful that, that I had that role and that I was able to do that. But I, but when that was over, I knew it was over, over. Like it took 
everything. And I was super unhealthy in that time period of my life. And, um, and, and that's, and that's what I think for that particular moment, at least for me, um, coming out of the entertainment world, I just decided I don't need to be that to serve people, to show up for people. I can be something else. And, and maybe that's the actress in me that could be on the stage. I can put on a different costume. And so I just decided I'm going to wear a different costume now and I can still accomplish some of the same things. They're just going to be in a slightly different container than they were before. And what about the experience then with, with your brother, if you can take us back there? Yeah. So, um, my brother had, uh, just, <laughs> he was in college and had just been accepted to be part of a new program that NASA was doing for, um, students who wanted to go into the medical field, but specifically for astronauts and, um, space. And so he was excited about that and had just gotten the news and was on his way with three other students who were also going to be a part of that program on his way to a Willie Nelson concert when um, a deer ran out, they were on the road, they avoided it, but by avoiding it, they went into a tree and three of the four died. And uh, my brother was the golden child. He was the perfect one. You know, I'm literally the redhead of the family and my parents didn't understand the artistic world at all, even though they supported me. And I think when that happened and it happened so suddenly and it happened to someone so young who had so much promise about it, it really took all the air out of our house for a really long time. And uh, how, how you come back from that is, uh, you know, lots, the statistics will show that a lot of married couples who lose a child end up separating or divorced. It's just, it's too hard to come back from that. It's too painful. In, in our case, my family got closer but it, it took a lot of energy and time and intentionality to say, again, this isn't all there is. And uh, we uh, put a lot of energy and time into a church camp and built a pool in his memory and uh, donate a lot of money instead of, you know, putting our heads in the sand and staying there. What, what can we do instead to create joy in the world? And uh, it is a, it's a great, I think, legacy for David that that has happened and continues to serve people. And was that part of um, then what served you getting into um, faith and ministry? Yeah, absolutely it was. So um, when I went home and left the entertainment world and went home and my parents' Sunday school class was at our house 24 hours a day for, I think, 10 days. They were on rotation. They just scheduled themselves and there was always somebody in the kitchen. So it didn't matter what time of the day you came in, there was somebody there to fix you food or they were handling all of the gifts and phone calls and paper towels and everything that you need. And uh -huh. I, in that moment, and I mean, I remember I was there in my ponytail with no makeup on and one of them was like, oh my gosh, Susie, you look just like you did when you were 10. And um, out of that, I decided that's the kind of community and mattering I want to help create for people is that. And so... Um, on a whim, I applied to seminary, got in, probably because they were trying to fill a quota of a person who didn't have a big Bible background. And there I was, this artsy person coming into seminary. But um, it was truly wonderful. Got my Master of Divinity, got my doctorate. And, um, and really, you know, a lot of the same rituals that you use in the entertainment world also serve the faith world. So there's a lot there about how you show up, what you do, how, how your mindset is right, what you believe in when you show up in the middle of adversity. And so for me, it was a natural fit. Mm -hmm. Was faith, um, how did faith help? And I know it's difficult, but from your standpoint, I mean, how did faith help your parents get through that? Well, I, I would say 
their Sunday school class is what got them through that. So um, I think they were mad for a long time. I don't think they prayed for a long time. Um, understandably so. I'll just be honest with you. Right. And um, But I think staying in community and having people who would say, I'm going to pray for you because you can't. I'm going to be here even though you think, you know, you don't want me here. And the, the tenacity of others to keep people aligned in community and faith, I think is sometimes the best model of being the hands and feet of God in the world that we can do. That's the best way to bear God to a hurting world, I think. Yeah, I'm always, um, I'm always amazed by, by those because I can't imagine a worse experience of losing a brother, losing, you know, a, a child in those kind of situations, um, especially the manner that those happen, I think probably have a lot to do with it as well. I think so. I think so. You know, I had just talked to, I think, um, 12 Monkeys, the film 12 Monkeys yeah. had just come out. My brother had just seen it. And the day before he died, we had this whole conversation. I was living in um, Florida at the time and um, had this whole conversation. And that's, that's the last conversation I had was about 12 months. It's just those, those things that you remember are so strange. And I, I remember that I, um, I was married at the time. And I, um, before I even packed to go home, I made brownies for my husband because I thought, I was like, you're going to need something to eat. So I made brownies. Like it's just the, how, how you show up in those moments of adversity and grief and trauma, they, they differ person to person, but it's just sometimes the way our brain and our heart are trying to process information. And, um, I would say that, um, everybody goes through it differently and, and to have a system where you go through doesn't really work. At least it didn't for me. And I don't advocate that. I think you have to feel your way through. Right. We've, we've mentioned two Brad Pitt movies now. So it hasn't happened yet on this podcast. That's hilarious. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. There you go. See if we can't keep that streak going. All right. All right. I'll see what so I can what, do what was the transition then from, um, you know, from the ministry into the current coaching? Well, that's actually was the transition. So what happened are various groups of people, especially nonprofits, would contract with me to do rituals to speak motivationally in front of retreats, workshops, organizational meetings. And from there, people would say, oh, can you do this? Oh, can you do that? Oh, let's bring you in. And so eventually what ha that really, like right now I'm still helping out a church because it's just a part of my world and I will always be that. But really that's what's taken off. And, and what I realized is my whole journey has put me to this moment, which is looking at problems creatively, offering strategic different solutions that are really internal to that specific organization with that specific need at that specific time, rather than saying, here's program A, here's program B, which one do you want? It's really about let's find the creative solution. Because I think, I think so many places and people, leaders, they're like, well, that didn't work. Okay, so just forget it. You know, I'm done. And uh, I, as, as you so deftly said at the beginning, I don't believe that stuck is ever the solution. And I always think that there's another way. And so I work really hard to try to inspire people and work through problems from kind of a creative mindset. And, and being a dancer, I mean, that's, that's all creative a lot. I mean, is that, do you, did that help you? Oh, I, I definitely think so. You know, one of the things I advocate for, so for all of your listeners that are checking in, if you serve on a board or a part of a board in any organization, my first question to you always is, do you have a creative on your board? So do you have a painter, a dancer, an actress, a musician? And that's because they just look at the world a little bit differently. And, and I think they, they can sometimes see problems and solutions in a, in a manner that finance can't. 
But then I would also say on a creative board, do you have a financial person? Do you have someone who looks at things in the box? So that balance is super important. I think companies and organizations sometimes sway one way or the other to their detriment. And so by, by I think, being in creative space where there are always problems, someone's always going down, a, um, a light didn't work, uh, the audience, you know, was just terrible that night. And so you're always trying to find ways to engage and show up in different ways. And I think that has really served me in the way that I serve my clients. What a fantastic tip. Yeah, thanks. I'm yeah. Fine. <laughs> no, that's great. Because I've always heard on boards, like, you, you, you need to have, you know, the naysayer, you need to have people that differ from right. you or it becomes the group think too easily. Yes. Um, but yeah, then definitely creative. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, with the, um, what do you see in terms of coaching now? Where do you see people then that get stuck? I think when something doesn't go right. So, you know, we're, we're in the middle of what is it? Month, 80,000 of the coronavirus, it feels like. And it's a good way to so, timestamp it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think so much of us, and, and you know, honestly, even me, I had a couple of weeks where I was just stuck. You know, I was like, oh, I'm not on a stage anymore. I'm not doing in-person events. What do I do now? Like my whole world, I had, I had 21 gigs cancel in the span of 12 days, my whole, my whole year canceled. And I think for a lot of us, that's, a, that's an example of we're just like, okay, well then it's just not working. Instead of going, okay, here is the reality of the situation. If money was no object, if time didn't, you know, if, if reality and time could be construed differently, what then would I do? And once you put that out in the universe, then walk back from that and go, okay, now to do that, what do I need? Okay, now to do that, what do I need? Okay, now what to do that, what do I need? And I think sometimes the problem seems so huge because we're looking at it huge. Like the environment, environment needs to be cleaned up. That is a huge problem. And so it's walking back the steps to say, what can I do? What can my organization do? How can I show up in this problem? It's super vast, super huge, but you take it back several steps. And I think sometimes it's a little accessible for people when you do that. When, when people get these breakthrough moments, you know, through your coaching, um, what is it that you see kind of take place? First, um, I see it in the body. If, you know, I'll be really honest. So usually when people come my way, it's usually not a good situation. Like, no, which I wish people would come, like, let me just put a little plug in for anyone that's doing coaching or consulting, you know, you, you want to use that person before life sucks. Okay. Let's just, just name it and say it like, that's the worst. <laughs> I mean, yes, you want to hire somebody, but it's better to have them in your pocket before that ever happens. Cause guess what? They'll help you from falling in the pothole. But, but what I, is most people come and they're just, they're tied up in their body. They're, they're just super conflicted. You can see it in their shoulders. Um, you just feel the tension in the room. The energy's funky. And so when you begin to unlock strategies for people, what I see is the shoulders go back. They sit a little better. They're more relaxed in their chair. People start laughing and smiling. Uh, the, the words that they use are different. And the energy just feels more uplifting rather than funky. And so that's the first thing that I see. And then the second thing that I see is people begin to possibility think which is they then can imagine new things into being because they're not just in that, oh, it's the grim reaper coming to call phase, right? Which is so easy to be stuck in. But then they can begin to say, oh, here's some possibilities. Here's something that we could do that we've never tried before. Maybe now, because nothing else has worked, we could try this. I, I pause because I, I love that because I think the body language, you know, obviously, I mean, it doesn't talk, it screams. Right. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, I, uh, I mean, in your work, you see that all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I firmly believe too that most battles, 
are won before they're even fought. And I think that's where a lot of it, you can see it with, you know, pro athletes is, is their body language. Um, right. You know, are they relaxed? Are they confident? And, you know, sometimes there's this bravado they want to show off, but it's just underneath that it's, it's just kind of a sheen of confidence. So. Right. Um, right. Exactly. Um, after people start to get momentum, you know, they start to get progress, start to see the possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, where then do you see that people get stuck again? Because I mean, obviously it's not like, Hey man, we just need to bring Suzanne in for a couple <laughs> sessions and it's great. And like, all right. But where do you see people then get stuck after they start to make momentum and progress on, on their journey? Well, I would say the first thing that they jump, that they don't do is they don't continue to build common ground in their organization. So, um, and I think you do that by asking the right questions which then means you're not talking all the time. Like, I mean, I'm talking all the time on here, so I'm not being a good model right now. But, but what I would say is if you have to continue to build common ground in your organization if you want to keep working together in a positive way. And so you want to keep, um, I teach a method called the ask method where you are, you are asking questions out of assets, you're asking questions out of skills, you're asking questions out of knowledge and making sure that your people that are in the room around a project or if you're dreaming something into being, that you've got all the bases covered and that you're continually evening out what you're doing. It's, it's, it's so fascinating to me that people show up to a meeting without two things. The first, they don't come with a communication agenda. We, we, we do our, here's what we've got to get through agenda, but we don't think about the people in the room and say, how do, how do I need to be giving out information? How are they going to receive information? Do, do we need to have this presentation or do we need to get up and move? Maybe we need to go play a game together. Maybe we just need to eat because we'll do better at table. We don't have the communication agenda. And in the second place, then the people get stuck is they just always want to be the imparter of information rather than taking a step back and saying, okay, for the good of the organization, I wanna be sure we've got the right people in the right space at the right time. So while this person did really great, you know, on this one project, maybe now they're not the right person for this other project. So let's get them in the room and figure out who the right people are. And I think that's where, you know, I I think so many times companies get off the rails in in that space. Mm. Give us an example of one of those ask questions. Well, okay, so I would say uh, when you gather people for a meeting, the first question you should always ask is not, hey, how are you doing? It should be, what brought us together? Hmm. Because, and that's, you know, that's an assets-based question, because I find so many people don't know why they're in a room. They, well, this was on my calendar. Or, well, I'm here because I'm representing XYZ department, instead of, what brought you all together needs to be the ultimate goal you're trying to get out of the meeting. And, and if everyone around the table can't name it in some form or fashion, the first thing you have to do is realign the meeting so that everyone understands why they're, why they're actually in the room. What about a, like, what would a knowledge question be? Cause I'm, I'm all in now. This just pumps me up. Well, I'm going to, I mean, if anybody wants, I've got a little guide. I'm happy. To oh, we're going to post it. We're going to post okay. it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, so a knowledge a question might be, what have you tried so far? Asking people what it, what, you know, it, I get that a lot. Well, you know, I can't, da, 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 da. I'm like, okay, well, what, what have you tried so far? And when you, when you get people to actually put pen to paper or mouth to an idea, what have you tried at least let you know all right well their knowledge has always been in like you talked about you know grim reaper kind of thing right so um falling falling off the cliff all the pitfalls if the only thing that you've tried is that kind of 
uh, language, those kinds of ideas, a risk averse, that's the only way you're thinking about a project. Instead, maybe that's when you need a creative to come in and go, okay, well, have we tried uh, getting up and having a walking meeting instead? We probably haven't tried that, but that doesn't, it doesn't mean it won't work. It's just, I want to know what you have tried so far. That, that's the knowledge that you're carrying into the meeting. So that communication agenda, what are the best meetings that, you know, we need to have food at then? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about your people. Mm-hmm. So um, I am terrible at two o'clock in the afternoon. I try not to take meetings. I definitely don't do recordings. That in my kind of way that however my body is, whatever working, from two to three is the worst time. And I will say I'm terrible at math. And that is usually when all of my math classes were scheduled. <laughs> it was terrible. That's probably why I'm really bad at math. And so think about when is best for your team. When are they on point? So if you need to have chocolate for people to function, then have some Hershey's Kisses on the, on the table. It's just not that hard. But these are the things that people don't think about in a communication agenda because it's just about imparting knowledge. And uh, it would really help kind of up-level the room if, if your people need snacks, make sure they're snacks. That's an easy fix. So, so what you're saying is we need to have Chick-fil-A at every single meeting. <laughs> My daughter would be really happy to hear you say that because she works at Chick-fil-A. So if, if Chick-fil-A is what makes your people sing, then yeah, get those nuggets there. That's what <laughs> you know, they sponsor this podcast there. Oh, there you go. Well, there you go. That's that, They probably love that bit. <laughs> well, I always say this. I mean, well, Chick-fil-A is the best. So I mean, yes. I absolutely love them. Yeah. Um, boy, I love those strategies. What, uh, what else? What else? Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, I think people need to dream more. Um, I don't know what happened in our education system. I don't think it was intentional, but, uh, let me get on my soapbox for a minute. I think we've taken away the power of dreaming because most teachers, bless their hearts, come from a family of teachers, are trying to just teach to tests or to, so that they can get funding, so they can continue to operate, so that mm-hmm. their schools can stay open. It's just a terrible cycle that we're in. And so I speak a lot at universities and college campuses and high school campuses, and, and it is amazing to me how many of those people are just have had the, the dreaming ability taken from them because it doesn't fit fill out the box or uh, choose A, B, C, D. And, and so when you've got a group of people together and they haven't had ways where they can explore creativity, where they've been allowed to fail just because you weren't supposed to have an outcome, it's okay to just fail to fail, you know? And I think that if organizations could help figure out how to allow their people to dream big dreams without a monetary attachment, without an accomplishment attachment, uh, without a this is going forever in your HR file attachment that um, companies and leaders would be better suited to show up in the world today. Mm. How do we facilitate that? So let's just say in the youth. Well, I would say you need to have way more interactive opportunities than most people are giving credit for. So uh, internally, when we're kinesthetically involved, we retain information in a different level. So for example, if I'm in front of a, a group of students, I might teach them how to juggle. Just because one, you're having to interact with, with two, two people right? They're mm-hmm. modeling each other. You also have something else happening at the same time and someone's usually giving you directions. 
that is a really great way to say, how do you listen? How do you show up for someone in the middle of chaos? What do you do when you don't know how to do something? Instead of, here's the steps to do that. You can teach people how to juggle and oh my gosh, they will remember that experience forever. So it's finding a way to align differently an interactive way to engage in knowledge. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons why, and again, you being the performing arts, I look at sports as the same way, but yes. part of the way that youth sports has changed is, you know, growing up, if we were playing pickup baseball, um, this bottle cap is going to be first base, this, this shoe is going to be second, and, and we got to create the rules, right? Like, if you right. hit it into the street, that's out of bounds. Now it's so structured that there's no free play. There's no, Correct. yeah, here's a stick. Let's just dig. Right. And I think that's what stifles a lot of that creativity that, that oh, happens sure. and hence into the dreams. You know, you think about uh, children, very young children at Christmas time coming up and parents spend all this time and money on all of these toys. They're educational. That's great. I'm not knocking any of that. I, I think kids should play more for sure. But, at the end of Christmas, what I find is a lot of times the kids are playing with the box and yeah. the wrapping paper and the ribbon, or they're grabbing blankets and they're making tents on the sofa. And, and I think allowing kids boxes of things just because, and then allowing them to figure it out is a really great way. One of the things that um, I learned with my work at Disney was that, that you Take, for example, mouse ears. I, I was looking to see if I had some near, near me, but I don't. Um, and, and in a workshop, I might say, even you know, young kids to older adults, what are these? Everybody says, they're mouse ears. And then you go, okay, for the next one minute with your team, I want you to come up with at least 10 ways that these aren't mouse ears. And people kind of look at you and like for the first 15 seconds, and then I usually say, okay, for example, it could be a dog toy, ready, set, go. And now they have 45 seconds to come up with 10 things that it could be. And, and people laugh and they think it's funny, and, uh, but it really does get them engaged. Just because it's a something, just because the boundaries have said this, doesn't mean that that's all that there is. And I think finding ways to really invite people into that playful spirit uh, will go a long way in sports, at companies, um, parenting, for example. I think, I think it really applies all the way around. You just getting back to me, the power of play. Yeah. It's just so important in our lives. And, you know, that's why I think we don't get old because, well, I think we get old because we stop playing. Yeah. For example. Yeah. You, um, you, you people that can't see this one, right? I mean, you've, you've gotten emotional a few times here. What, what is, what does the passion come from? What is it that drives you? Oh, um, you know, it, it's interesting I, I hear people say, so if you're one of these people, thank you for saying this. I'm just going to disagree with you. I hear people say that your passion doesn't change. And, and I would say that is absolutely not true in my case. Because my passion in the beginning was to be a superstar. And I would do everything I could to be on a stage with lights on me. And that, that was my passion. My passion now is about unlocking that spirit in other people. And, and so I think... Um, while the nugget of your passion might not change, the way that it shows up changes. And if you're not continually checking in with yourself and doing the hard work of saying, like um, I did a video this week uh, for my community and just said, who do you want to be in 2021? Instead of saying, here are my goals in 2021, I said, who do you want to be? Because you've got to answer that question before you can decide what your goals are. 
You can't just say, oh, I'm going to lose weight. Okay, who do you want to be? Do you want to be healthier, for example? Okay, now how do you do that? It's not just about weight. Weight is one indicator. It's not the whole indicator. So if you're going to be healthier, maybe you need to unplug from toxic whatever uh, technology. Maybe you need to whatever. So healthy is a different thing. So I would say that for me, my passion is unlocking that in others, that kind of creative, juicy, exciting, full of verve, can't wait to get out of bed, really don't want to go to sleep because I'm excited about the day kind of way of being in the world. Yeah, I love it. Suzanne, what questions should I be asking that, that I'm not <laughs> asking? Hmm. Yeah, gosh, I wish I had something for you. Um, what should you be asking? I think what you should be asking is uh, how important is the brain to everything that we're doing? And I, I know you deal with this so much. And I think as, you know, we, what have we mapped? I think it's 13% of how the brain works. And I really believe um, my work with epigenetics and neural dynamics would, would tell us that we are able you can actually repair neurons in your brain from trauma when you decide that you're going to do that and you engage in healthy things like play, imagination, physical activity, or you can keep them dead and dying if you're stuck in negativity um, and you are uh, surrounding yourself with people who don't help you dream. And so I think the, the question that I like being asked is, how do we create better brains? And I, and I would say to dream and imagine and play and get outside and uh, laugh, laugh more, find something that helps you laugh more. And um, I keep a, a box of confetti that I sometimes just take around with me and throw in the air and watch people, you know, like at Costco in line, I'll just like throw some confetti out of my purse and people are like, oh, she's a weirdo. Yep, I'm a total weirdo, but everybody starts laughing. And I think we need more of those kinds of things to help our brains um, stay healthy for us for a lifetime. Are you ever in a line at Costco and you whip out like one of your products and you're like, hey, what can we make out of this? <laughs> yeah, or a show tune. I might start a show tune or something. You know, if, um, I am I am one of those people that might do a kick line in the airport in those days that I used to travel all the time. And uh, you just, it's just um, getting people to just get out of their muck and their mire and their, I'm, I'm, on, I'm here and I'm going here. And instead just take a moment and, um, just relax a little bit. I mean, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Suzanne, thank you so much for the time today. And where, where do you want people to uh, follow you and, and learn more about you and, and your services? You know what? If you go to SuzanneCastle.com, it has everything. It's got all of the social links that you'd ever want. And if you drop in there to free resources, that ask method is right there. Yeah, I love that. And um, it's a three-page worksheet. It's got questions to ask. It's just, just it's a great template to take into a meeting. And um, I would love to connect with anyone. This has just been um, a, a wonderful way to spend my Friday. So I appreciate you uh, reaching out. Your work is exemplary. And I um, really adore this time. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.